Exodus chapter 17, starting in verse 1. Exodus chapter 17, verse 1 says, Then all the congregation of the children of Israel set out on their journey from the wilderness of Zin, according to the commandment of the Lord, and camped in Rephidim. But there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore the people contended with Moses and said, Give us water that we may drink. So Moses said to them, Why do you contend with me? Why do you tempt the Lord? And the people thirsted there for water, and the people complained against Moses and said, Why is it you have brought us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? So Moses cried out to the Lord, saying, What shall I do with these people? They're almost ready to stone me. And the Lord said to Moses, Go on before the people, take with you some of the elders of Israel, also take in your hand your rod with which you struck the river, and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock in Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water will come out of it that the people may drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. So he called the name of that place Massa and Meribah because of the contention of the children of Israel, because they tempted the Lord, saying, Is the Lord among us or not? So Massa and Meribah, temptation and contention. And so... I'm going to stop there for today's message. Water from the rock is what I'm calling it. And I have two different lessons that I want us to think about. They're applications. And, and, and when we read through these things, uh, as we'll see later in, in Corinthians, there is, an, there is an application that's there for us. When we read the Old Testament, there's something, God is wanting us to understand something about him and who he is. And so the picture here, we have all these multitudes of people, the children of Israel, and they're moving on from one place to the next place. And, and they've just been, they were hungry, and then they got manna. And now they are thirsty again. So they've been thirsty before. And so what happens in this passage that had me really thinking is when they complain and, and they thirst. And so I have a question about this complaint, because if you've ever been really thirsty, you know that it's a serious deal. Like you can die if you don't get enough water. And so thirsting is when you're, when you're thirsting for something, when you're thirsty for physical water, you need it. Like you, you really do. And so you have the people, they're thirsty, they need water, but it says that they are contending with Moses. They're complaining about it. Now, we know from this perspective of thousands of years later that those different accounts of the water, God providing water for the children of Israel, the account of God uh, giving them manna in the, children, in the wilderness, by the account of them coming through the Red Sea, all of those things become part of the testimony that we say this is who God is. He parts Red Seas. He gives manna in the wilderness. He can make water come out of a rock. That's what God does. And so when we look at them in their moment, it seems like they could also know that, that the children of Israel could know that there is, they could know that there is, that this is what God has done, this is what God is going to continue to do, but instead they're complaining. And so my first response to this, this thing about the complaint is like, are they serious about the complaint? Are they really complaining? Are they really saying we're going to die? Like, do they believe that? Are they, are they, is, it, is it so bad that they are positive that they're going to die? Are they looking at the lack of water going, we're going to die? And is that why they're complaining? Is the complaint really serious? Because we see the same complaint in chapter 14, chapter 15, chapter 16, and again in chapter 17, and then we'll see it again uh, over in Numbers, we see the same complaint, almost exactly the same, going, we're going to die, I started thinking, is it just like, 
if you've ever worked, um, like I just remember working as a young guy on a ranch in Montana and the way we would talk about the hardships, like I remember specifically, we'd be out digging post holes or something on a drift fence way out in the mountains. And there's so many rocks in the Rocky Mountains and <laughs> there's so many rocks. And so you'd be digging a fence post and you'd hit this big rock. And so you'd try to move around it. And, and so we're supposed to stay on this line. So your only option was to move the fence post either closer this back to where you came or farther this way. And so, we'd, we, and so it would just be like you'd, you'd start and you'd hit the rock and we would say things like, well, of course, you know, you know, uh, we, we'd say kind of sarcastic things. We'd say cynical things about how we, we, we of course, we're going to hit rocks, you know, or, or like, well, it's just, it's, just, it's just the main bedrock. That's all we hit today. Like, we'd, you know, and then it would rain and we would say the same type of things. We'd be like, well, of course, this is going to happen. And we would just get into a kind of a funny sort of way. We were counting it as humor, but we were actually complaining about the work that we were doing. And it was, it was kind of a, and so I've sometimes wondered, did the children of Israel get into a sort of a strange, sarcastic humor about this where they're like, oh, well, of course, we're in the desert. Moses brought us out here. Of course, we're going to be thirsty. Come on, man, we're going to die. Like, was it that? Were they really complaining that they thought they were going to die? Was it, was it just a strange humor? Was, um, what was, what's going on? Why do they complain so much? And how do they complain? And so that was, that's a thought that I, was, I wanted to think about. And, the, and so, you know, when they say it, because I think the first time we see it is just a couple chapters ago in chapter 14. In chapter 14, um, verse 11, they, say, then they said to Moses, because there were no graves in Egypt, have you taken us away to die in the wilderness? Why have you dealt with us to bring us up out of Egypt? And they say there, is this not the word that we told you in Egypt saying, let us alone that we may serve the Egyptians? So they're saying, we had a better idea, Moses. We wanted to stay in Egypt. We wanted to serve the Egyptians. And so when we've talked about this before, the, the part that we focused in on was the fact that they would say it was, we were doing well in Egypt. We were doing fine in Egypt. Like, why disturb us? Why did you disturb us from our slavery? We were comfortable in our slavery. Why did you, in the bondage, why did you disturb us and bring us out here? And, and why are we having to do all of this? And, and then, you know, they come out here and they, they keep saying, did you bring us out here to die? What's amazing about it is the people that are speaking, the leaders of the houses at this time, they all died in the wilderness. So they keep asking the question, and it's like they're, they're expecting to die in the wilderness. They're looking for a way to die in the wilderness is what it comes down to. They, they're, it's almost like they're, they want to prove to Moses how bad it is, and so they want to die in the wilderness. And so every opportunity that comes along, they're saying, really, Moses, did you bring us out here? And so I don't actually know. Was it just because sometimes when you have that many people, if someone says something in a bit of a clever way, then pretty soon everyone says the same thing, whether it's right or wrong. And so the complaints might have been like that, where their automatic response was almost like a proverb or an idiom where they would just say this thing and it'd be kind of like clever and they'd kind of laugh like how, you know, how smart they were and how, you know, why, you know, and, 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 and maybe they didn't really mean it as the complaint against God that it was, because every time they did it, they weren't, turning to God. They had an opportunity to turn to God and then they weren't turning to God. And so that's the, the huge issue. But so you'd think that at some point, if it's just, you know, it, it's not just fun and games if you're really concerned about your children dying from thirst. And so I, I, I thought about this for quite a while, the whole complaint-based lifestyle that they have. Complaint is their first thing, not prayer, not saying, hey, Moses, 
we need to pray. What's God going to do? It's none of that. It's just you brought us out here to die. You thought this was a better place for us to die. And they're, they're complaining immediately. And they say, why did you bring us up out of Egypt? And it's like from our perspective, we say, didn't you just see the Red Sea being part? You walked through there. How did that happen? Did you, have you ever seen that before? And we think that having seen a miracle like that, having seen that, but, but then you have to back up and say, well, they also saw the 10 plagues. They saw when God started making a difference and saying, well, I'm going to do this to the children, of, to the Egyptians, but I'm not going to touch the children of Israel. And you would think that would have been enough, but they're again, they're complaining, they're not seeing it. And so as I'm considering this account, I started looking to see, well, when did they complain next? Well, for, right after this account, they go, they fight the Amalekites, and then um, Moses, uh, Jethro's father, gives Moses some counsel. They head over to Mount Sinai, and then this is where they're going to build the tabernacle and put all this stuff together. And so they're going to spend several years there, two years at least, that they're going to be there. And so I was looking through this after the two years are over. If you go over to Numbers chapter 20, in Numbers chapter 20, so you have in between Exodus and Numbers, you have Leviticus, which has a lot of the laws in it. But in Numbers 20, it's continuing on with the account. And so it's been telling how they're building everything, how, what, count, um, what feast they're going to keep unto the Lord. They're keeping all of this. And there's, there's actually um, the moment where they are refusing to go into Canaan. And so they're experiencing that. They have various different rebellions against Moses and Aaron. There's just a lot of stuff happening. And then in Numbers 20, verse 1, we start back again. It says, Then the, the children of Israel, the whole congregation, came into the wilderness of Zin in the first month. And so for some reason, Exodus and Numbers are spelling this. They're calling it wilderness of sin and wilderness of Zin. And I, I couldn't quite figure that out, if that is just a, why we kept the different spellings in a translation. Why would we call it wilderness of sin in one place, wilderness of zin in another? I'm not sure what's going on. I felt like it was the same place, but they come back around, they come to a different place. They come in verse one, it says, they came into the wilderness of zin in the first month. The people stayed in Kadesh, and Miriam died there and was buried there. And there was no water for the congregation. So they gathered together against Moses and Aaron. So by this time, they have seen people rebel against Moses and Aaron. They have seen the earth open up and swallow people for complaining against Moses and Aaron. They have, they have seen the plague come through. They've seen so many things. And again, I say, don't you understand? You shouldn't complain against God. But they're out of water. And so what did they say? Verse 2, it says, there was no water, so they gathered against Moses and Aaron. Verse 3, the people contended with Moses and Aaron, saying, if only we had died when our brethren died before the Lord. They're literally saying, if only when the earth had opened up, if it only had swallowed all of us, we'd be better shape. And, I, and I'm looking at this going, what is wrong with these people? Now, anytime I'm saying what is wrong with these people, I always know that I have to be careful because... I'm probably one of those people, and I probably, you know, in, in the way I deal with things, it's probably it's going to come back at me, so I'm going to have to apply this in some way. But what, I mean, for real, they just saw the things that God did to say, no, this, this is my servant. You're going to obey him. You're going to follow him. He is right. They've seen all of this. They've, they've seen the rebellion. They've seen all of the plague, all of that stuff. And their first chance, first opportunity, they're out of water, do they pray? Do they seek the Lord? No. They complain. 
would have been better if we would have been judged by God last time. And sometimes I kind of think Moses should have just stepped out of the way and let God do it. Because it seems so, there's just a continual complaint-based lifestyle. And they continue in verse four. They say, why have you brought up the assembly of the Lord into this wilderness that we and our animals should die here? Why have you made us come up out of Egypt to bring us to this evil place? Is it not a place of grain or figs or vines or pomegranates, nor is there any water to drink? So Moses and Aaron went from the presence of the assembly to the door of the tabernacle of meeting, and they fell on their faces, and the glory of the Lord appeared to them. So Moses and Aaron are having this problem where they, they are understanding that God is providing for them. They see the manna every day. And, and all of these people who are complaining see the same things that Moses and Aaron are seeing. But instead, they're saying, the, the people are complaining and Moses and Aaron are going, wait a minute, don't complain like this. Do you remember what happened? This is, gonna, this is not going to be good. The last time people were complaining like this, there was a disease that came in. Do you remember that? And so Moses... The Lord spoke to Moses in verse seven, says in verse seven, then the Lord spoke to Moses saying, take the rod, you and your brother Aaron, gather the congregation together, speak to the rock before their eyes and it will yield its water. Thus you shall bring water for them out of the rock and give drink to the congregation and their animals. So Moses took the rod from before the Lord as he commanded him. And Moses and Aaron gathered the assembly together before the rock. And he said to them, here now you rebels, must we bring water for you out of this rock? Then Moses lifted his hand and struck the rock twice with his rod and water came out abundantly and the congregation and their animals drank. Then the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, because you did not believe me to hallow me in the eyes of the children of Israel, therefore you shall not bring this assembly into the land of which I have given them. This was the water of Meribah because the children of Israel contended with the Lord and he was hallowed among them. So we have two problems that have shown up now. And I wanted to come here to Numbers. Um, to, so the first account in Exodus, Moses is told to go and strike the rock. He strikes the rock, water comes out. Now we are a couple of years later. They've gone through a lot of things. There've been a lot of complaints. Moses has seen a lot of stuff. He's had the Lord confirm over and over again that yes, he is listening to God. Yes, the people should listen to him. He has the confirmation of God on his life. But in this moment, he's still taking it a little personally when they complain. Because God has already told them, this is not about you, Moses. They're complaining, it's about me. They don't believe in me. They don't believe, they're complaining to you because when a complaint-based life, when someone is content, contending and, com and committed to complaining, they're always gonna look for someone to blame. It's an absolute refusal to see the hand of God in your life. See, most of us, can look back at our life and say, here God protected me, here God did something for me, here he spoke to me in this way, whether it's through someone or some, through his word or somehow he, he spoke, we can tell you the things, here he answered a prayer and we can, we can, most of us have something in our background, something in our history where we can point back to say, here's where we've seen the goodness of God. But when we're met with a new need, or maybe it's the same old need back again, we have an opportunity to either say, Lord, in the past, you have been marvelous and you have provided for me and you've taken care of me. What do you want to do now? How do you want to? And, and we have a chance to, to activate faith, to walk in faith. Or we can complain and say, oh, it's happening again, Lord. Look at this. You just, you know, it's always hard. And we can complain and complain and complain. And so this complaint-based life 
not only is it a refusal to see the hand of God in the past, in our lives, but it then also stops us from actually being able to see what God is doing right now and to be able to pray. And so it, it, it basically kills our faith. Our faith just shrivels up because we don't expect that God is going to do anything. We, we're just like, well, see, I told you so. I was expecting a flat tire, you know, I was expecting. And we, and we, and we just are always expecting the worst instead of seeing it as, oh, what are you going to do now, Lord? This is a new challenge. How are we going to, how are we going to deal with this one? And so that is on the one hand side. So as I was meditating on that. I'm thinking about that. I've got the people over here. Then I have Moses. Moses has been doing pretty good. Ever since he finally made it to Egypt and started seeing what God was doing with Pharaoh, Moses has been understanding that God keeps his word. When God tells you to do something, you can go do that. Moses has been learning that. When all the people complain, when they don't believe, Moses believes. Moses asks God what he wants to do. So Moses has been this picture of faith in the middle of all these complaining people. And then we get to this moment and, he, and God says, go speak to the rock. He goes and he says, he strikes the rock twice. And then the Lord spoke to Moses and says, because you didn't believe me to hallow my name in the to hallow me in the names, in the eyes of the children of Israel. Therefore, you shall not bring this assembly into the land which I've given them. So in a moment, right here, as Moses walks up to this rock, he actually hits it and water comes out of the rock. So that's a miracle, right? You think, well, that's pretty amazing. But God says, Moses, you did the wrong thing. And because of that, and he explains it later in Deuteronomy, he says, because of this, you're not going to take the children of Israel into the promised land. In fact, we can go over there and look at that right now. It's in, it's in Deuteronomy 32. Deuteronomy 32, uh, verses 48 to 52. That's toward the end of the chapter. So Deuteronomy 32, starting in verse 48. Then the Lord spoke to Moses that very same day, saying, Go up this mountain of the Abiram, Mount Nebo, which is in the land of Moab, across from Jericho. View the land of Canaan, which I give to the children of Israel as a possession, and die on the mountain which you ascend, and be gathered to your people, just as Aaron your brother died on Mount Hor and was gathered to his people. Because you trespassed against me among the children of Israel at the waters of Meribah Kadesh, in the wilderness of Zin, because you did not hallow me in the midst of the children of Israel, yet you shall see the land before you, though you shall not go there, into the land which I am giving to the children of Israel. And so Moses is being told by God, go climb this mountain, look across, you see the promised land, that's where the children of Israel are going, that's where you're supposed to be going, but you can't go because of what you did back at the waters of Meribah. Now who complained at the waters of Meribah? The people. Who provided water for them? It was Moses. But who's being punished? For Meribah. It's Moses. And so I was in my mind, and, and so this is what I have heard, and, and just I, I think it's a, a valid point. The rock in the wilderness is Jesus. Is actually, we have a New Testament verse that talks about that, that the rock is Jesus. Um, I believe it's actually in 1 Corinthians 10. Let's go look at that, and then I will make my applications out of this. So 1 Corinthians 10. Starting in verse 1. 1 Corinthians 10, verse 1. 
It says, moreover, brethren, I do not want you to be unaware that all of our fathers were under the cloud, all passed under the sea. All were baptized into, into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and all ate the same spiritual food, all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. But with most of them, God was not well pleased, for their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. Now these things became our examples to the intent that we should not lust after evil things as they lusted. And do not become idolaters as were some of them, as it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Nor let us commit sexual immorality as some of them did, and in one day 23,000 fell. Nor let us tempt Christ as some of them also tempted and were destroyed by serpents. Nor complain as some of them also complained and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now all these things happened to them as examples, and they were written for our admonition, upon whom the ends of the ages have come. Therefore let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you except as is common to man, but God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will also make the way of escape that you may be able to bear it. And so as I'm looking back at this, it, Paul is just saying, Everybody, all, all the people were under the cloud. What cloud? The cloud of the glory of the Lord. There's the, tent, the tabernacle. There's the pillar of cloud. They see the lightnings. They, hear the, they actually heard the voice of God speaking from the cloud at Mount Sinai. They, actually, they were all there. But how many of those men actually went into the promised land? Well, the men from the beginning, all the way through, the, the ones who died, the, the, the ones that stayed there for who died in the wilderness, we started out with 600,000 men. I forget exactly how many it was. It was over, I think I have it written down over here. Um, 603,550 men above the, age, above the age of 20 years. How many of those men made it into the, children, into the promised land? Two. It doesn't tell us how many of the wives and the, you know, you know, the children that made it in but the men, the fighting age men that came out through the Red Sea, 603,550, they all saw the hand of God at work. So when Paul says, take heed lest you fall, he's pointing back to this moment going, um, the numbers are against you. Like there's a huge amount of people who see the handiwork of God there's a huge amount of people who read the word of God. There's a huge amount of people who know about God, but take heed lest you fall. Because do you remember that when God himself was on earth dwelling in a cloud of fire and it was a cloud by day and fire by night, when, when God was here and his people, he was feeding his people every day manna, when he was doing all of this, when he was doing this, out of the 600,000 people, men that were going through there too, believed and went all over the promised land. Moses believed the entire time, but there was this one moment where he did something. And so I want to talk about that for a moment. So you have, you have Moses standing here by the rock. And the previous time when he stood by a rock and God and his people were thirsty and they were complaining, he was told to strike the rock. So he struck the rock, waters come out. And so now he stands there and he's standing in the front of the rock and he turns around to the people and says, what, you, we have to get water out of a rock for you complainers? Like that's basically his heart and his attitude. It's what it feels like. He's not, he's not thinking about what God is doing. He's not listening to the voice of God in this moment. It's frustrating. 
I would be very frustrated if I had that many people, because if you think of 600,000 men plus women and children, that's a lot of people. And if I have that many people complaining, like if I have five of my children complaining because they're thirsty, um, that's a lot. Like if they're hungry and I'm like, we're going to eat in 20 minutes or whatever, you know? And so to, to think about that, you, you multiply that. If I'm responsible for someone and then they don't have what they need and they're complaining and I'm like, well, like you can pray too. ask God what he wants to like. I don't know what Moses is thinking, but he's, he's not fully listening to the voice of the Lord. The Lord says, go speak to that rock. So he goes to the rock, says something to the people, and then he strikes the rock twice. I found this fascinating. The early church is convinced that he struck it in the shape of a cross. Like that, he, he hit it twice. <clears throat> and the water did come out of the rock, but immediately God said, Moses, because of that, you're not going because you did not make my name holy in the eyes of the children of Israel. God wanted Moses to walk up to the rock and speak to the rock and water was going to come out at his word. Not with him striking it. He was going to speak to it. Now, we don't read that God gave him the exact words to say, so I'm not sure what he was supposed to say. Like, he was supposed to walk up to the rock and tell it to bring forth water. I don't know what he was supposed to say. And so, on one level, I always feel like, wow, that was a strong punishment on Moses for doing this. The way that I see it clearest, the whole that God wanted him to be made, to, to wanted Moses to make his name holy, the way, what has made the most sense to me is when we look in 1 Corinthians and it says it was the rock was Jesus that followed them in the wilderness. So if this rock is a picture of Christ, our rock, then we look at Christ. He came to earth. He was struck once. When he comes back, he's not going to be struck again. Even now, when we need something from Jesus, we don't go hit him with a stick. We, I mean, it sounds kind of funny, but like we don't. That's not, we come and what do we do? We speak a word to Jesus. And so we come and we, and in fact, it says, Jesus told us, in my name, ask the Father and he will give it to you. And so we pray in the name of Jesus. We speak the word. We pray in Jesus' name and we ask God the Father for something. And every time that we ask, he doesn't have to go back on the cross and die again. If we need, if, we, if we're asking for a miracle of forgiveness of our sins because we fell again, if we're needing provision for our daily bread because we need food, if we're thirsty in the wilderness, if we're, whatever it is, if we're praying for health, no matter what we're praying for, anything that we're praying for, God doesn't go, oh, oh, I hadn't thought about that one. Hold on. I need to send Jesus back to the cross. He's going to die again he did, to, to pay for that one. No, when Jesus died on the cross, it paid for everything that the church of Jesus Christ will ever need throughout all eternity. He doesn't have to die again. It's finished. When he said it's finished, it was finished. And we, we get to spend the rest of our lives finishing, finding out what all was finished. 
because our salvation was finished. Our ability to walk in the spirit was finished. Our ability to please the father, to obey him, to take the gospel to all the nations, to make disciples, all of those things that was all finished in the cross. He didn't have to then say, okay, that was kind of a good take. Let's do it one more time. Let's see if that'll give us, no, one time was enough. When Jesus died, his blood purchased us from the grips of sin and death, and we were made free, and we don't have to go back, and he doesn't have to go back and die again and again and again. We as people sometimes have to come back and confess again and again and ask for help again and again. But what the picture that God was setting up was, here is Jesus, the rock in the wilderness. He has struck once, and after that, you speak to the rock, and you get everything you need. And what does Moses do? He messed up God's picture. And so a couple years ago, it all kind of came to me very clearly in, and I think I shared it here in a message, um, and we were talking about marriage specifically, because we said, why does God care so much about things like homosexuality and other things? Why does God care so much about divorce? Why does God care about certain sins where you read the Bible and you're like, wow, he's very strong on this one. And part of it is that there are things in our daily life that God gives us that are pictures of who he is. And so when we get married, we have the, we have the bride and we have the bridegroom and we have the picture of Christ and the church and we have a picture that's at stake. And when we mess up that picture, it messes with the holiness of God. And so in the same way that God tells Moses, you did not make me holy in front of the people when you struck the rock, when we don't respect marriage, God says, you are not making me holy in front of the people. And so we're messing with the images. So you think of a master creator who is creating this beautiful masterpiece, and he says, here's what I'm going to do, I'm going to sketch. So if, you, if I'm, as a painter, I can really... Um, feel this, like as I'm, if I'm drawing something or painting something. If I'm going along and I'm painting a picture, and then I, in a moment, you walk up and you grab a brush and you do something completely different to my picture, I'm not very pleased. I mean, unless you're Rembrandt or someone else and you actually do something beautiful in a moment, that, that'd be kind of funny, you know, we'd be working. But most of the time, that's not what happens. If someone comes up and grabs a paintbrush, it's not because they know how to fix my painting. It's because they're like, ooh, let's see what this does. Well, that's black and it kind of messed it up. And so this is what's happening though it, in there at, at the waters of Meribah is that there is an opportunity for Moses to give an illustration of the holiness of God, the power of God. This rock doesn't have to be struck. You can just speak to the rock and water is gonna come gushing out of this rock. At the same time, it's going to be a picture of Jesus Christ, the cornerstone the rock of our salvation. And he's going to give us this image of this, this, this thing that he struck once on the cross, and then forever after that, we speak to the rock. It's just a word. It's, a, it's no more smiting Christ. He's, it's finished. And Moses messes up that picture. So now, I've read one account, and I'm dealing with two things. One is my complaint-based life, and the other is, do I make God holy in the opportunities that I've been given? So for instance, if you go over to um, John chapter four, I'm 
John chapter 4. This is the chapter, this is the chapter and the passage. So we're going to read from 1 through. I'm just going to read this, um, the whole account of Jesus and the, and the Samaritan woman. This is the passage where we get the name for Living Water Fellowship out of it. Um, okay, so John chapter 4, four starting in verse 1, it says, When the Lord knew that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus made and baptized more disciples than John, though Jesus himself did not baptize but his disciples, he left Judea, departed again to Galilee. But he needed to go through Samaria. Um, I think, is this where the King James says he must needs go through Samaria? I think is what it says. And so it's like this, this a... Um, he needs to go through Samaria. And when I, when, when, when I was looking at this, at one point, I, I remember trying to figure out, well, does he have to? Is this like the only road to go? Or was there something else? Because there's a spiritual reason why he needs to go through Samaria. And that's part of what is being said here. So he's, he comes, verse five, he, he came to, this, to a city of Samaria, which is called Sychar, near the plot of ground that Jacob gave to his son, Joseph. Now Jacob's well was there. Jesus, therefore, being wearied from his journey, sat thus by the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman of Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. Now, I want you to think of the echo here. We have 600,000 men, their wives and children in the wilderness saying, Moses, give me a drink. And now we have the Lord himself walking on earth, taking a path by which he gets thirsty, sitting down by a well, and here comes the Samaritan woman. He says, give me a drink. Same words, completely different scenario happening here. And so for his disciples, verse eight, for his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. Then the woman of Samaria said to him, how is it that you being a Jew ask a drink from me, a Samaritan woman? For Jews have no dealings with the Samaritans. Verse 10, Jesus answered and said to her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. And so Jesus basically uses this cryptic way of talking and says, if you knew who I was, instead of me asking you for a drink, you would be asking me for a drink. Verse 11, the woman said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where then do you get that living water? Verse 12, are you greater than our father Jacob who gave us the well and drank from it himself and as well as his sons and his livestock? So here's something amazing. She has a rich heritage and tradition. She says, Jacob, how many hundreds of years ago, Jacob dug this well, he drank from this well. This is a, a special place. Are you better than him? Verse 13, Jesus answered and said to her, whoever drinks of this water, talking about the well, will thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him will never thirst but the water that I shall give him will become in him a fountain of water springing up into everlasting life. The woman said to him, sir, give me this water that a, I may not thirst nor come here to draw. And that's as far as I'm actually going to read it. I'm, you can read the rest of it. It's, it, it keeps being awesome. But, but this moment is, he says, whoever drinks this water out of him, out of his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. All right. So now I want you to come back to, for a moment, let's go all the way back to, we're in 
the wilderness and all of the people are there. They've all seen God in the cloud. They've all seen God in the fire. They've all seen the waters being split. They've all seen the manna rain down. They've all seen the first time that when God actually, uh, when Moses provided for them by striking the rock and the water came out, they have seen all of this. They have seen it. All of them have seen this. And so each one, every person there in that desert in the wilderness, every one of them has an opportunity to say, hey, Moses, remember last time when God provided for us? Would he do that again? Can we pray? Can we do that? Like, is that, is that, like, is that a promise for us? They could, any one of them could have done this. But what do they do? They look for someone to blame. They're looking. And so there they find Moses. And they look, you, you are actually the one. It was your idea, this whole thing. You came from wherever you came from, and you were like, hey, let's leave Egypt. But we were comfortable, actually, in Egypt. And so this can happen to us because the world is our Egypt. Whatever our world was, we were like, we were comfortable back there. It was comfortable. We loved it. We did our, and then one day, someone came along, spoke the word of God to us, and we were like, hey, we're in the wrong place. And so we start moving, but then it gets hard. And, it, and suddenly we forget everything that God has done to bring us out of the world, to bring us, to save us from there. And we forget what God is saving us to. And we are stuck in the middle and we're going, oh, you remember those days when I could just do whatever I wanted to do? That was nice, wasn't it? And we forget how lost we were, how much we were in bondage, how dark it was, how much we needed God in that time. And so then we're here and we're in a deep need and we have two options do we turn to God to provide what we have, what we need? Or do we just complain and remember how things were? You know, I think God just brought me here because he really wanted to test me or something. And we can talk about it in such a way that it brings no glory to God. And so here's the, now I want you to think about it because the people sinned in one way and Moses sinned in a different way. But they both failed there at the water. Moses forgot some very simple thing. He forgot that, he, that God told him to speak to the rock. And I'm telling you, I think I combined these two things together because faith does not survive in a complaint-based heart. And when God instructs me to speak his word into my life and to, to me and to my circumstances and to apply his word, that's when I, when I say speak his word into my life, that's what I'm talking about. I take this word and I apply it to my life and I let him work through it. He really means it. He really means. So when Jesus said, whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him will never thirst, but the water that I shall give him will become in him a fountain of water springing up into everlasting life. When Jesus said that, he actually means that. He means that when we come to him at the cross and our sins are forgiven, we're made a new creature in Christ. He means that out of our innermost being, rivers of living water will flow forth. And when a parched and thirsty world comes to us, they will hear from us the words of life and it will flow out of our innermost being like a fountain. But not only that, when we ourselves are walking in the wilderness and we are parched and we are struggling and we are needing something to refresh us, he literally says the spirit of God within you it will flow up out of you and you will be refreshed. And so when I come, and this is the application for me, I come up and here is the need. The need is real. I'm thirsty. Whatever the need is, it's real. 
the opportunity presents itself, there is Christ, the rock, and he's with me in the wilderness. And God says, speak to the rock. If I choose, and sometimes I do, if I choose to complain about the circumstances and say, you know, I really didn't want to do this. I, it was a bad idea from the beginning. I don't know why we're, why we're acting, you know, this, this really... This is not my idea of, of what the Christian life ought to be, and I don't really like these circumstances. I don't like what's happening. Can we, and and I, can, I can just get into a complaint, 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 and at that moment, I am shutting down the rivers of living water. I'm not speaking to the rock. I'm just complaining, and I'm literally saying, if God would just let me do things my way, my life would be better. If I could have stayed back in, the world, in, in Egypt, in the world, where if I could, that would be better than this. And so I find myself simultaneously doing both what the people did and what Moses did. I'm not speaking to the rock and I'm complaining about what the circumstances are. And yet I've been given an opportunity to speak to the rock. And I I thought about this verse over in John 15 when I was thinking about this. John 15 verse 15. Jesus is is speaking. This is right there between the Last Supper and the crucifixion. And Jesus says, No longer do I call you servants, for a servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. For all things that I heard from my Father I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should remain, that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give you. And he ends with... These things that command you that you love one another. And so what I find here, the, the lesson that I was receiving for myself as I meditated on this, is yes, God really cares for the images that he puts in his scripture. He really cares for the images that he sets up in my life. So my relationships, it's not just for the sake of the relationship. It's that he gives me an opportunity. Like So Stacy and I, we get to be a picture of the bride and of the church. With me and my sons, we get to be a picture of the father and his children. This is all part of, so when I mess this up, it's not just that I'm, that I'm being mean to someone or that I'm being selfish, it's that I'm messing with the holiness of God. He gives me an opportunity to illustrate to the world what he does, how he loves his people, how he loves his church, how he loves his children. He gives me this picture that, is, that he wants me to live. And as I'm doing that, he's not wanting to keep me all the way in the dark. It's not that he's going, oh man, I don't want you to know anything that's happening. He says, no, you're my friend and you know the rock. You know Jesus. You can walk with him. And out of your innermost being, the spirit of God is within us and it will flow out of us and literally, if I am parched and need refreshment, if I am confused and, willing, and wanting to complain, where is the Spirit of God? He has put his Spirit within me. I can take a moment and I can say, what has God done in the past? And I can start to speak his word into my life. So if there is something in my life that is lost, if I'm lost, I can be saved if I speak the word into it. If I am confused about life and I speak the word of God into it, I can bring clarity. If I am foolish and don't know how to live, I speak his word into, my, into that circumstance and I can have wisdom. If I'm in bondage in any area, I can find freedom in the word of God that he wants me to speak into my life. If there is oppression, he has victory. If I'm overwhelmed, he has hope. If I'm full of complaints, he can give me true gratefulness. 
And so I can go from having a heart full of complaints to having to, to unclogging that by refusing to complain and choosing gratefulness and hearing God, obeying God, speaking his word. And I don't mean just preaching his word. I mean reading his word into our, my own life and applying it to me. And then out of that, the rivers of living water can flow right where I am, right in the wilderness, in the most bitter place. His word can make it alive. And so I don't want to have a complaint-based life, and I don't want to have this, I don't want to be tired of all the people like Moses seemed to be. I want to be willing to draw near to God in gratefulness for what he's done in the past. I want to be able to present to him the need. I want to hear his voice. I want to obey him. And I want to make his name holy for the people. And I believe that as we're supposed to learn from the children of Israel walking through the wilderness, that, it, that this is some, one of the lessons for us to learn, is that God is about something bigger than you and me. He is making a beautiful picture, and in eternity, we will look back and he'll say, look at what I did. Do you see how beautiful salvation is? And we're like, yeah, we see that. It's more beautiful than we realize. Do you see how beautiful marriage is? And we're like, yeah, that's amazing. Do you see how beautiful the relationship is when you hear my word and you speak it either to yourself or to others? Do you see this? That when my people are walking out in the wilderness of the world, that any one of them, in any dark place, in any thirsty place, they actually have the living water with them and it spills out wherever they go, anywhere in the world. No matter how dark the spot is, no matter how barren it is, you can go there and you can have the living water of God flowing out of it. We can have water from the rock, and the rock is Jesus. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that you give us these examples. You give us this scripture for an example. And I pray, Father, that you would, for each of us here, Lord, we desire to know you and to allow you to work through us. We want your living water to flow through us. We don't want to have it clogged with complaints. So, Father... We choose gratefulness. Thank you for saving us. Thank you for sanctifying us. Thank you for being with us. You, made, you, said, you gave us the promise that we weren't just your servants, we we're your friends. You, you, because you tell your friends what you're doing. You want us to know what you're doing in the world. So Father, we want to hear you. We want to have our ears open to what you're doing and saying. Thank you for loving us. Thank you for providing a way for us to serve you here on earth. And Father, we ask that you would empower us by your Holy Spirit to truly be people of gratefulness, people of your word, that we would be able to draw near to you and hear you, that we wouldn't crucify Christ again by our actions, but that we would truly speak to the rock and make your name holy among the nations. We love you in Jesus' name, amen.